We now return to find Nathan's chastising prophecy begin to unfold in some of the saddest and most disturbing events in the life of King David. This is the 26th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel in chapter 13. 2 Samuel in chapter 13. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By the inspiration of God, the prophet writes. And it came to pass after this, that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he said unto him, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat, and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it and eat it at her hand. So Amnon lay down and made himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar my sister come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat at her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress him meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down, and she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have out all the men from me. And they went out every man from him. And Amnon said to Tamar, Bring me the meat into the chamber, that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made, and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her, and said unto her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. And I... Whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Howbeit, he would not hearken unto her voice. But being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater and the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. And he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. And she had a garment of diverse colors upon her. For with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. James, 
In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13 through 15, he says this. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, stanzas 1 through 18, these are the most disturbing verses in the whole of the Old Testament. The exposition of these events is indeed tragic, as they are so uncomfortable to even read and to even recite. In fact, the graphic nature is so sickening that it often moves a tender heart to weep over the depth of this evil act perpetuated upon both a young woman and its systemic effect on an entire family and an entire nation. And yet this event is written in the Word of God. It is for our warning, it is for our learning, it is for our admonition. And as hard as the following exposition may be, let us gird up the loins of our mind to glean much from what God has to teach us. And may God help us to do so. Now up until this point, it seemed as if everything was going pretty well, pretty smoothly. Joab and David had taken the city of Rabbah and captured the king. And not only was this a great victory, obviously procured by God's blessing, for without God's blessing, no man could take a city. But David was able to strip the king of Rabbah of his crown, placing it upon his own head. The scripture then tells us that David put the people under saws, under instruments of iron and axes, and made some of them pass through the brick kiln. Now from this we might we might infer that David either made them slaves and servants or even he executed them. He might have even executed them for their rebellion and for what they had done in the past to his messengers who had come to the king of Rabbah with a message of peace. And so it seemed as if God's blessings at this point were with David and his army. And while it was true that there were immediate consequences as a result of David's lustful infidelity with Bathsheba, Perhaps the words of Nathan's prophecy would not be as dreadful as as first anticipated. And maybe David thought, well, maybe that was the end of it. Sadly, David's troubles had only just begun. In the first verse of chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, God begins to expose the first of many assaults upon David and his legacy by turning our attention away from the external battlefield of the nations to the internal battlefield within David's own house and amidst his own children. In chapter 13, verse 1, the scripture makes a very clear statement concerning David's son, Amnon's feelings. It came to pass after this, that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So at this point, God clearly sets up the relationship between David, Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar. So there would be no doubt as to the complexity of this situation. So the question that we have to ask initially, especially after we read, and Amnon, the son of David, loved Tamar, is did he really love her? 
Were his feelings genuine? Were his feelings sincere? Or were his feelings deceptive, as often feelings are? Was his love based upon what God defines as love? Or was Amnon's love for Tamar merely a product of his sinful, Adamic, lustful nature? Tamar was Amnon's stepsister, his half-sister, who was the sister of his half-brother Absalom. And according to the description here by the scriptures, she was a beauty. The word fair in the Hebrew used to describe her physical appearance actually means she was beautiful. She was beautiful. And to this there's no doubt. Tamar was a beautiful young woman. Arrayed in precious apparel. Lovely to look upon. A beautiful young woman. But the insinuation here also implies that she was not only beautiful physically to look upon, she was pure. She was an undefiled virgin daughter of David, the sister of Absalom, the half-sister of Amnon, and she was pure as she was beautiful. Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar, each were the children of David, and so by this blood relation, they were not only relatives, but they were siblings. For Amnon to feel a love for a half-sister, Tamar, was in and of itself no sin. There was no sin there, nor was it unlawful. In fact, he should love his half-sister, as long as it was genuine love, brotherly love for, for his, his half-sister, for the girl. But to have a lustful, physical interest in her, to want her lustfully for himself, that was forbidden, and he knew it. And this is why the scripture states that it was difficult for Amnon to do anything to Tamar that would violate her virginity and bring reproach upon Amnon, Tamar, and the entire house of David. But what is curious about this verse is that it seems to insinuate that it was actually Tamar's virginity that kept Amnon from intimacy with her. The question then might be asked, if Tamar was not a pure virgin, would that have moved Amnon to be more aggressive? You see, Amnon's problem was not that he loved his sister. His problem was that he allowed his love for his sister to turn to lust. And it appears that he was thinking about her day after day, night after night, to the point where he couldn't even function anymore. Instead of mortifying his inordinate affections for that which was forbidden, instead of killing them and seeking to kill them day by day, instead of feeding into them day by day, he just kept feeding into them. And they begin to grow more stronger and stronger and stronger until he couldn't contain himself. And Amnon, it says in verse 2, was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar. And that should have been his warning sign. His lovesick hunger for a physical relationship with his half-sister was unlawful, and yet he allowed himself to feed into that hunger. Like his father before him, he failed to arrest his internal passions. And once he allowed his lust to fester and grow, Failing to mortify it, he was ripe for any temptation that would send him over the top. Any insinuation that he could have her without any consequences whatsoever, that it could be kept secret from Israel, that it could be secretive alliance with Tamar against Absalom's knowledge or David's knowledge. Once he began to believe that this could happen, he was ripe for destruction. So here is a man 
who has lost all sense of control. Amnon's loss of self-control brought him to a place of unlawful obsession for which he was dangerously feeding into and which, as a consequence, was dangerously unhealthy to a point which not only threatened himself, but his half-sister and the entire kingdom that David had fought for. Amnon's unwillingness to control his own lusts grew into an uncontrollable carnal obsession with a forbidden relationship to the point where his obsession turned into psychological torment. The man was so consumed with his lust, he was out of his mind. Amnon was tormented over his inability to have his lust satisfied by his sister Tamar. Okay, so what should he have done? What should Amnon have done to maintain a posture of self-control? Well, the first thing he should have done was to identify his desires as unlawful. He had to analyze them. He needed to analyze them to recognize the wickedness of his thought pattern. He had to see clearly that his desire was sinful and that it was destroying him. And that's where he failed. He failed to recognize his desire was wickedness. He allowed himself, and this is where the mind plays tricks on you, because he was so infatuated, so obsessed with this woman, that he allowed himself to envision himself in his mind's eye, to envision himself with Tamar in this romantic relationship. Instead of recognizing it as wrong and mortifying it and trying to turn it into something pure, he fed into it. We must deal with thoughts which are unlawful by mortifying them, not feeding into them. We must identify these thoughts as such, that they're wicked, and confess them before God and beg. We see nothing here. I'm not, not begging, not saying, Lord, I know this is wrong. Help me. Have mercy upon me. My mind is out of, out of control. My body is out of control. I want something that's unlawful. I'm going to destroy the kingdom. I'd rather destroy myself. We don't hear anything like that. He wanted what he wanted and he made sure that he got it. He was unable to identify the problem. Amnon's problem, first and foremost, was denial. He was in denial that any such romance was a violation of God's law. Secondly, Amnon's denial led him to blindness. As a result, it was impossible for him to calculate the ramifications of his thoughts and possible actions. In other words, he was short-sighted. He didn't realize, if I do this, what are the ramifications? What is going to happen, not only to me, not only to my sister, not only to her brother, not only to my father, not only for the kingdom, not only for Israel, what about the enemies are going to... Blaspheme God because of it. He was so short-sighted, he couldn't calculate the consequences of his action. He was in denial. In fact, he probably believed that no one would find out and everything was fine. But in God's world, every action has a reaction attached to it. There will be consequences. In other words, there are consequences attached to everything we think and do. To deny that universal fact is to deny the word of God. Thirdly, if Amnon had identified his passion for Tamar as unlawful, he'd 
failed to beg God for the strength to abstain. Nowhere do we see that he was confessing his vexation for his sister. Nowhere do we see where he's asking God for spiritual fortitude to refrain from any evil imagination toward his sister. Now, if he did pray, which as of course we know he did not, it's important to note that his prayer should not have been for the strength to abstain from any action that might violate God's law, but rather his prayer should have been for the strength to abstain from any unlawful thoughts which would result in actions. Because Amnon's problem was first and foremost in his mind. Because that's where all sinful thoughts originate, in the mind. Solomon, perhaps reflecting upon his his half-brother's sin, tells us, as a man thinks, so is he. In other words, as a man thinks, so will be his actions. Paul, too, the apostle, is quick to remind the Philippians that the first line of defense against sin, against any unlawful thoughts, begins in the mind, and so he tells them to meditate upon that which is holy. Notice what he says. Finally, my brethren, he says this in chapter 4 of Philippians, beginning in verse 8. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Because the battle begins in the mind. Amnon's battle was in his mind, which he failed to be victorious over. So by feeding into what he lusted after, he became psychologically distressed, tormented, and finally physically incapacitated to the point where he became sick. The man was a mess. The fourth point. He was self-conceited. He was so full of himself. Perhaps David's son, good-looking guy. Even Jonadab was telling him, you know, you're the king's son. You should get anything you want. He was self-conceited. He wanted Tamar and that was it. That was that. It didn't matter what the consequences would be. It didn't matter that it was incestuous, an incestuous desire because he was all about himself. Amnon's self-centered interest and short-sightedness also tells us that he really didn't care about anybody but himself. Nobody but himself. His self-conceit made him incapable to consider others. It made him incapable to ask for help in the situation that he found himself in. He was too proud. You don't see anything here where Amnon said, hey, I've got this problem. I've got this thing going on in my head. I've got this stuff whirling around in my head and I know it's wrong. Brother, help me. Help me. No. In fact, as we'll see later on, he even uses his father as a conspirator, an unaware conspirator in this entire mess. Number five, Amnon really didn't love his sister as he should have. Because if he did, he would have had desire for her to find a godly man to care for her. He would have desired for a godly man to love her purely under the blessings of God. But Amnon wanted the best for himself and not for his sister. And that is not love, but that is selfish lust. Sixth point, Amnon was a man who despised everyone else and had no regard for their feelings or what his actions would do to them. He despised his own half-brother Absalom. He despised Tamar. He despised David the king. He even despised God as well as the entire nation of Israel. Once again, 
He was not considering anyone but himself. Number seven, his lustful desire for that which was forbidden was a testimony that he had been corrupted by the world. He was a worldly man. Peter explains the connection between lust and the corruption in his second letter of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Notice what he says. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and promises, so that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. He didn't escape. He was in bondage. Amnon was unable to escape the corruption of worldliness as a result of his inability to mortify his unlawful desire for Tamar. And finally, number eight, Amnon's refusal to deal with his temptation had set himself up to be susceptible to any provocation which would give him an excuse to satisfy his lust for his sister. He was, he was on the precipice of going over the top. And because he was ready to have it like he wanted, and to the antagonist, Amnon's so-called friend, Jonadab, the son of Shimei, which was actually his cousin. You would think that his cousin would say, Brother, brother, are you out of your mind? That's your sister. Are you crazy? Don't you understand the consequence? But he wasn't a godly man. No. Notice, But Amnon had a friend. My mother used to say, friends like that, you don't need any enemies. His name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very cunning man. Oh, he was a cunning man. And just think about Amnon and his friend, both cunning men. Birds of a feather usually flock together, don't they? And while it may seem as if Jonadab is the tempter in this scenario. That's not actually the case. Subtle, crafty, cunning, yeah. But the tempter, no. Maybe he exacerbated the problem, but he was not the tempter. The temptation came from Ammon himself. And that's what James is trying to tell us. Because every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. All Jonadab did was give Amnon an excuse to satisfy his lusts. Amnon could not turn around and blame anyone but himself for his actions, as well as his inward temptations, which were safely guarded in his fleshly desires. He couldn't tell his his brother Absalom or David. He said, well, wait a minute. It wasn't me. It was my cousin. It was Jonadab. It was his fault. He made me do it. He did it. No, not so. You did it. The Apostle Paul gives this clear definition of where temptation lies. So note this, the temptation lies within you. You don't need any Jonadab. It lies within you. Notice, the Apostle Paul to the church of Galatia, chapter 4, verse 14, and my temptation which was in my flesh, he despised not. Seeing the king's son Amnon in such a state, Jonadab asks, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? In other words, tell me some news. Give me the drama. I want to hear all of the dirt. So Jonathan is saying that he wants to know so he can help. And this in and of itself is telling. 
He tells them that he should not be lean from day to day. You are the king's son. You should not be in such a state. It is as if he is saying that Amnon has a birthright, that Amnon has an entitlement to do whatever he wants to do. He can satisfy any lust, any desire, and nothing should be held from him. Nothing should be held from every whim, every wish that he has, no matter what the consequences. You are the king's son. You're a Christian. You should be able to do anything you want because you know we're all saved by grace. You can have anything you desire. What gives? So in light of the nature of Amnon's forbidden desire, one might think that he might be too ashamed to divulge such a lustful mind to this man. I mean, if, if you had an a, a inordinate desire, something wicked, something condemnable, and someone said, what's happening? Would you say, well, can you help me with this problem? Because this is what I want. And yet he tells Jonadab straight out that he's in love with his half-sister. Not that he might be helped to mortify the sin, but that he might be helped in order to satisfy his lust. Consider the strategic prodding of Jonadab as he encourages Amnon's flesh to give way to his inward temptation. And Jonadab, verse 5, And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed and make thyself sick. When thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat. Dress the meat in my sight that I may see it and eat it at her hand. Now, Jonadab's plan is, is absolutely brilliant. Wickedly brilliant, but it is brilliant nevertheless. He doesn't tell Amnon to call Tamar directly to his bed. Rather, he tells him first to employ the king. Bring the king in to see Amnon. And through the command of the king, this way, Amnon won't be held responsible. Tamar will be sent by the king's commandment, making the king an unwilling accomplice. Brilliant! Jonadab is using David, the king, as an insurance against any blowback. Because if things get ugly, they can say that Tamar was summoned by the king, insinuating that it was the king that really brought about this horrible thing. So Amnon lay down and made himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar my sister come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat at her hand. Now curiously, David does not inquire as to why Amnon wanted Tamar to minister to him. Why not the doctors? Why not the nurses? Why Tamar? Obviously, David was not suspicious of Amnon's motives. He thought well of the, of the man. He thought well of his, his, his daughter. He obviously thought they were both honorable individuals, that they would not do such a horrible thing to be alone, that they would be at least mindful. But once Tamar entered into Amnon's bedchamber, the trap was ready to be sprung. Verse 7 and following. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress meat for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was laid down. And she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. She took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have out all men from me. And they went out, every man from him. And Amnon said unto Tamar, Bring me the meat into the chamber that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar Innocent Tamar, virtuous Tamar, 
obedient Tamar to her father and to her brother. She brings the meat. She brings the cakes. She brings them into the chamber to her brother Amnon. It seems clear that Tamar was also probably pretty much naive, unaware of the ways of the world, especially as it concerned her brother Amnon. She was trusting Amnon to be alone with Amnon. And so innocently... She complies with his request without so much as a thought or an inclination of any impropriety. But once she's in the spider's lair, he bounces upon her. Come, lie with me, my sister. Now the words here are telling. He doesn't say, come lie with me. He says, come lie with me, my sister. He knew exactly the relationship. He knew exactly what was going on here. By identifying Tamar as his sister, he is confessing, whether he knows it or not, as to their relationship and what is about to happen was incestuous and it was wicked. And if he gets his way, he will be condemning himself as perpetuating an act of incest. But what is more horrifying is that this is not only incest, it will also become an act of rape. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her. The Hebrew here is quite explicit. In other words, Amnon seized upon her and bound her forcibly where she could not break free. He uses the phrase, lie with me, which is an explicit reference to a sexual connection as if to say, let me ravage you. It's not just, come come, lie down, let's just talk about it. No, I am going to ravage you. I am going to defile you. At this point, as disturbing as this is, we see Amnon losing all restraint. He is reduced at this point to a wild beast of a man without any care for the consequences of his actions. Because if he had admired Tamar's virginity before, he cares little for her purity now. Calvin comments here. He says this, Although David was granted peace by the consoling promise given him by the prophet, He did not escape the punishments with which he had been threatened. Here, in his house, an act of incest was committed, which was far worse than fornication. It would already have been a tragic heartbreak for a king to see his daughter raped by anyone, but it was a far more enormous crime when her own brother abused her. Now this was the judgment of God, which David was bearing. And it was as if God had condemned him to be shamefully exposed to the whole world. Nor was this the end. For as we shall see later, this act of incest brought on a murder when Absalom killed Amnon. End quote. So sin always brings consequences. And much sin brings many consequences. The more egregious the offense, the more tragic the consequences. Let me pause for a moment. This account is one of the most troubling, the most sorrowful and tragic events that can happen to any family. This historical event and the way the narrative unfolds it is a warning for us. It's a warning so that before we contemplate anything, even before we do that thing, we need to count the costs. We need to ask, what are the consequences of my actions? Amnon failed to count the cost and he paid dearly for it, as did all of Israel. It would have been a Acceptable if by Amnon's actions only Amnon paid the consequences. That would have been fine. That would have been judgment. But it wasn't just Amnon. 
It was comprehensive. It was systemic. It affected everyone. And that is what sin does. It affects everyone and everything. By Amnon's action, everyone and everything became collateral damage. Amnon, by his lust, not only destroyed a family, his actions threatened to destroy an entire kingdom which God has set up through his father David. Paul reminds us in the New Testament that the things which happened to Israel was for our warning and our admonition. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, But with many of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted after. So when we read the scriptures, when we read the Holy Word of God, why are we reading the Word of God? So that we would be able to debate well? So that we would be great apologists or evangelicals? so that we would understand these are for our examples. And then Paul says this in verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, notice verse 12, wherefore let him that thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Oh, we think, we reformers, we reformation guys, gals, Oh, we think because we know doctrine. We think because we have a godly family, that we're homeschooling. We think that we've done this, we did the other thing, that we're not going to fall. Beware. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and to think on your thoughts and make sure that they are not like Amnon's or like any of the wicked of this world. Now, aware of Amnon's evil intentions, Tamar refuses. To her credit, she refuses and she begs her brother. Notice, she's saying, no, don't do this. Don't commit such a shameful act. And she answered him saying, no, my brother. Notice, the relationship is pounded home. My brother, my sister. No, my brother. Do not force me. In other words, let's not do this. This is rape and this is incest. My brother and forcing speaks of rape and incest. For no such thing ought to be done in Israel Do not this folly. If you do this, it is folly. It is foolishness. So here's a woman of virtue and integrity. Furthermore, I think she shows a caring heart for her brother, the knucklehead that he was, the wicked man that he was. She's showing respect for her brother. She's showing respect for her father, the honor of her nation, of course, her own own virtue. She pleads with her brother. Further, in verse 12, but this time, she even gives him a solution. So in verse 13, we read this. And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? Where am I going to go? If you do this, I'm done. I'm, I'm violated. And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, here's the solution. Speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Consider her concerns. First, she is obviously concerned for her own virtue. She is violated. She will be regarded as unclean. There will be no way to cleanse her of her shame. Once it's done, it's done. Once it's finished, you can't go back. You can't dial it back. No time machines here. It's done, it's done. She will be shackled forever with this. She will be shackled forever and she will then be considered a whore. That would greatly reduce her marital status. No, nobody wants that. Amnon is completely destroying this woman. 
Secondly, she's also concerned for Amnon, as I said before, that he would be looked at as a fool. And she had feelings for him too, but not those kind. And this shows she had a caring heart, even though Amnon is willing to violate her and cause shame to be placed on her forever, she shows care for him. But then she offers a solution to the situation that might be honorable. She says, I pray thee, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. And this is a really curious statement. Was Tamar under the impression that this relationship had a future? Could David have lawfully given his blessing for them to be married? An incestual marriage? Was incest somehow acceptable in ancient Israel? Or was Tamar just trying to offer a ruse, thinking that Amnon might say, well, well, okay, well, maybe that's a possibility. Maybe we won't do this thing. But even if a marriage between Amnon and, and Tamar was possible, that's not what he wanted. Amnon really didn't want any part of a marriage. He wanted no part of marriage. He wanted her in a lustful way. All he wanted was Tamar to satisfy his lust-filled fleshly heart and body. Verse 14. How be it? He would not hearken unto her, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. And by this violence, and by her own brother whom she trusted, she trusted him, she would never be the same. She's never going to be the same. Nor would all of Israel. Amnon not only sinned, but he committed a crime punishable by death, if not the maximum penalty. The next verse proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that Amnon's love was nothing more than a sexual desire for that which was forbidden. Notice. Then Amnon hated her. He didn't just hate her. He despised her. Hated her exceedingly. I read this, all I could do is weep for the wickedness of man so that he hated her to the point where he despised her, so that he hated her to the point where that hatred was greater than the love wherewith he had for her. Be gone. Throwing her out like a piece of trash, having satisfied his lustful flesh, Amnon reveals who he really is Arise, be gone, I'm done with you. Get out of my sight, you disgust me. And what is incredibly bizarre about Amnon's hatred and disgust is that the one thing which was so enticing about Tamar that made him be vexed for her was her virginity. Now that it was taken from her by a forceful act of violent lust, he hates her. How crazy insane is that? Tamar then responds to Amnon's wickedness. And she says unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he wanted nothing to do with it. But he would not hearken unto her. So herein Amnon adds insult to a great injustice and injury. Even after pleading, he doubles down on his hatred and forcibly removes her from his presence. Notice this, how cold, how calculated Then he calls his servants that ministered unto him and said, Put out this woman. No more, my sister. No more, dear Tamar. Put out from me that woman. And make sure she doesn't come in until you bolt that door. Still clothed in her royal apparel of many colors. She is removed from her rapist and thrust out of his chambers to deal with her shame 
in silent sorrow. We shall consider that next when we return to this very sad and tragic story. This we shall do, God helping us, and to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.